0: This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church. The scripture reading for today is Luke 10, 25 through 29. Jesus replied, do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? This is God's word. Who is my neighbor? Who's my neighbor? About seven years ago, uh, my wife Adele and I, we were living in Spokane, Washington, And uh, our our home at the time had uh, uh, three houses surrounding it. Uh, There were two in the back and one on the right. And and, uh, we were those neighbors, those neighbors, those uh, get-to-know-you neighbors, those overly chatty, overly happy ones, the ones you like to avoid when you're on the walk in your neighborhood. We were those ones. Uh, And we were living in a, a, a rough Neighborhood, a rougher neighborhood. Uh, just picture lots of chain link fences and big angry dogs. Okay, uh, that's where we were living. And uh, and and one morning, I remember waking up and thinking to myself: One summer, warm morning. What's that smell? What's that smell? You know, it, it, it was summertime, we didn't have air conditioning, so we had the, the windows on the second floor down, and, and some smell was kind of wafting into the house, and it smelled faintly like skunk. And then I realized, boy, you know, that smell, I've been smelling that all around the neighborhood, really, and it's wafting into my house, and that was when the light bulb went on, because I was smelling pot. <laughs> Aha! <laughs> right? I think my first reaction was kind of that classic, kind of like leaning out the window going, who's my neighbor again? You know, which way is the wind coming from today, right? <laughs> who's my neighbor? You know, your neighbor and mine might not always be who exactly we think they are. I mean, they, they might not be who we think they are in more ways than one. As we'll see from Jesus' words this morning in our passages, passage this morning, we're, we're going to see some things that the changes how we're to view others, how we view ourselves, how we're to respond to others. Let me set up the scene that, that Emily just did a great job reading for us this morning. Jesus is in some kind of a room, and uh, and, and he's probably with a group of men, maybe gathered around a meal, and everybody is seated on the floor uh, uh, near east style, so they're all the way down here. And then suddenly, one of the guys pops up. He stands up. Uh, this is a bit of a power move, right? If, if everyone's seated on the ground, you're standing, right? All the eyes naturally kind of go to this encounter, wondering what's going to happen next. It signals something big is coming. And the man that stands up is a lawyer, it says. A lawyer. Now, this kind of lawyer, this, this would be somebody who was a scribe, trained as a scribe, and trained in the Mosaic law. That would be the, the Jewish religion and traditions of that day. And so this guy is smart, right? He's an intellectual, right? This is a guy who would have a PhD and an MDiv and a couple other, you know, letters following his name. And we're told here that what he does is he gives Jesus a test. He's testing him. Right? And what he does, you can kind of picture more like a, like a solid shove in the chest, okay? Because even though he does this uh, with a little bit of, of respect by calling him teacher, it is nonetheless meant to be a straightforward challenge, a test. And from this test, what we see is our first set of questions and answers. And there's a logic flow that's happening here. And what the man does first is he asks Jesus— teacher what shall I do to inherit eternal life and Jesus does his his classic move here right answering a question with a new question don't we parents love doing that too with our kids right question new question new question that's what he does here he asks a question in return he takes the lawyer to the law and in essence he says you tell me lawyer what does the law say what does it say? And, and the answer that the man responds with is to love God and love your neighbor fully. Love God, love others fully. An answer here that's built on two key Old Testament passages about the law. There was a, these were famous verses. He builds his case on those. And Jesus responds here by saying, correct, right, right answer. And then he says, do this and you will live. That's all he says. That's it. Do this and you'll live. And with this, a little bit of the light bulb above the lawyer's head starts to flicker because there's a problem with his thesis question. It's not a problem of logic. It is a problem of possibility. Because he knew, like everyone knows, that that no one has ever loved God with all his heart, all his soul, all his strength, and all his mind. No one had perfectly kept the commandment to love his neighbor as himself. The lawyer, no doubt, or spied the same problem. Tried to create a perfect record. But see, Jesus doesn't offer any kind of workarounds here. He doesn't offer any kind of troubleshooting here. He doesn't offer any kind of other option here. It's just do this and you'll live. So the lawyer is sticking to his guns of what must he do to inherit eternal life. Remember the thesis. And so he, he doubles down here and he asks another question, a second question here. He says, then who's my neighbor? Who's my neighbor? If this is about me loving my neighbor as myself and I've got to pull that off in order to, to be able to, to, to you know, get into heaven... Give me the list. Give me the list. Right? That's the heart, and that's the issue in this passage. Loving your neighbor as yourself, how do I pull that off to get into heaven? That's what this passage surrounds. So Jesus looks at the lawyer, though, in response. He looks at his heart. It's like he's saying, hmm, you don't quite seem to be getting this. You don't quite seem to be tracking with the answers that we've provided here. So let me give you a for instance. Let me give you an example. And The for instance is what we pick up in verse 30. It says this, Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a a Levite, a temple helper, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was and when he saw him, he had compassion. Underline that. Verse 34, he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and he took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii, two silver coins, and gave them to him. Keeper saying, take care of him. Whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think... Provided proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers. And he, the lawyer, said, the one who showed him mercy. Mercy. And Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. Who's my neighbor? Who's my neighbor? Jesus is going in for the conviction here with the lawyer. When he answers the question by giving the most upside-down story that this lawyer could ever have imagined. This neighbor that he's answering with is clearly not who the lawyer is thinking of. In fact, the big point of Jesus' story of setting up this scene where a man, a Samaritan man, rescues a Jewish man out of compassion, at great cost to himself, at risk to himself, and pays the debt for the rescue that he just delivered is that your neighbor who you are called to love as yourself could be anyone it could be anyone the man's attempt to formulate a manageable list of those who he has to love in order to get his record straight to get into heaven just won't work there is no manageable list Anyone in need could be my neighbor, despite the problems or differences of race, of finances, of religion, of politics, of status, and so forth. And then, not only just the who, but the extent, right? The extent that is displayed in this passage of loving somebody else as yourself is huge. It's huge, and it's humbling And it's supposed to be. That's the point. See, Jesus is showing the man, the lawyer, the distance between God's standard of what loving someone else looks like and the man's manageable list. He's showing the distance. Jesus blows the top off the idea of this manageable list of neighbors and blows the top off the idea that there's a a certain set of dues. When it comes to loving others. And instead, what is he doing? He's turning the question around at the end. Did you catch it? He moves from the man's question of who is my neighbor to the right question of who was a neighbor to the man. The question becomes, are you being a neighbor? Not who's the list. It's who are you? Are you being a neighbor to the one in need do you show a kind of love described here as mercy see mercy here is love shown to the undeserving mercy In both sets of questions both sets of answers the issue is love being shown to the undeserving that's mercy and it is not mercy that is supposed to start out there it is mercy that starts right here it starts with me and how much I've received. See, the reality that we need to glean from this friends is that anyone who wants to follow Jesus moves from who's my neighbor to being a neighbor. And then in reality then, mercy starts with me. Mercy starts with me. It begins with me as a recipient of God's mercy as someone who hasn't measured up, who isn't measuring up to fulfilling the l- commands that God has laid out of loving him and loving others fully. We didn't live up to those commands. You know, I live in Port Washington. Right now, there's a big billboard in town. You can't possibly miss it. It says, love God, love others, period. It's great. It's good. It's, that's true. And I can't do it. I can't do it. Not fully, not perfectly, so not at all. I don't pull it off. As someone who isn't, hasn't, and won't pass the test of perfectly loving God and others, mercy starts with me receiving it. And then that reality is shown to me as a giver of mercy. It starts with me again as a giver. Because freely we've received, so freely we're to give when it comes to mercy. Tim Keller writes on this passage, We must remember the entire context of the parable of the Good Samaritan, or we can easily fall into the trap of moralism. Jesus is not telling us that we can be saved by imitating the Good Samaritan, even though he is clearly challenging, charging us to follow his Pattern. Rather, Jesus is seeking to humble us with the love God requires so that we will be willing to receive the love God offers. Jesus uses the work, as he goes on to write, Jesus uses the work of mercy to show us the essence of righteousness God requires in our relationships. This is not optional. If a professing Christian does not do so, how can the love of God be in him? 1 John three seventeen. The striking truth is that the work of mercy is fundamental to being a Christian. So friends, this is a complete reversal in thinking. The new way that you and I need to approach the works of mercy isn't with this constricting view, this view that says, who's my neighbor, right? Who, who do I have to love? How much do I have to do? What, you know, give me the manageable list. It's not the constricting view. No, instead, it is the broadening view. The view that says, how can I be a neighbor? How can I show mercy to those who don't deserve it? Not to those who are on the list, but anyone. And if God has shown me his abundant mercy, then that's my view. The mercy is to start with me in this way. This passage then, it functions Similar to so many other truths that we've seen throughout the New Testament. That we forgive because we have been forgiven. We love because we have been loved. We show mercy because we've received mercy. That's how we operate as followers of Jesus Christ. That's why mercy begins with me. Well, I want to point something out. In the first half of this, though, as we consider how mercy begins with me as a recipient. So because it can be tempting for us to want to kind of rush right past the first five verses of this passage and get to the, to the exciting story, get to the parable part, right? But the parable is told to someone who thought of themselves as already being pretty good. In fact, they would be, have been considered an expert in being good and how to be good. We can judge him, though, because we don't realize how often we do the same thing that the lawyer did. How we argue with God and his mercy to try to justify ourselves in at least one of two ways. One of two ways. See, we can say, God, I don't really need to be a recipient of mercy. I really need. You know, listen, I'm not that bad. Just like the lawyer we can fall into the moralism trap to try to justify ourselves. What we call the, the, the good person trap. What we call in church works-based righteousness. The good person trap. For so many people, it hangs them right up there. Hangs them right up there. See, see being a good person is all about trying to do one thing. Move the goalposts. It is all about trying to move around these things, adjusting what we're supposed to do, what's required to be done, the do's and don'ts, until we ourselves can finally get over them. That's what being a good person is all about. It's all about changing the standards around enough till we consider ourselves to be good. What we're doing is we are swapping out the standard, God's standard, for our standard. It's like in high jumping. If we were to be jumping over the bar, well, we're just going to lower this a little bit. We're just going to lower it a lot a bit so that we can finally get over it. That's a good person trap. Second, we can argue by saying, God, I need your mercy, but just a little bit. Just, just a little bit of it, right? I know I'm, I'm pretty good, but I'm not perfect. I've made some mistakes, So we try to create what I would call the the patch job of mercy. See, we ourselves are doing things, you know, in our minds, we're thinking we're doing 60% right. We need God to fill in the other 40%, right? We got 60% good. We got 40% mercy. And together, we're going to get over this. We see ourselves as a good person, just in need of a little bit of help, just a little bit of help to manage our problems, our mistakes, Most of the time, though, we we even prefer to write off the fault of those things onto some other reason, that it's our genetics, it's our government, it's our spouse's fault, right? It's anything but our fault. Because we know that we need God's mercy, but we don't want too much of it, just a little bit. Either of those sound familiar? So the problem with the good person trap, the patch jab trap, is that friend you will never be good enough. You will never be good enough. That's just the case. Because God is not playing the same game that you are. He is not vying to let a good person off the hook because there aren't any. He isn't interested in the patch job when the only thing that will work is a complete overhaul. We can argue, we can look for loopholes, we can shift the blame, all because we do not want to admit that our sin is our fault. But what God is doing is He's looking at His standard. He's not looking at yours. He's not looking at the version that you are. This is about not being good, being perfect. It's not 60, 40, it's 100% or failure. It's heaven or hell. There's no middle ground with God. And the results are in. And guess what? We all failed. Every last one of us, we all failed. We didn't love God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all of our mind, with all of our strength. We didn't love our neighbor as ourselves. In fact, if we look at this thing pretty closely, we did the opposite, didn't we? We didn't meet the standard. But the mercy of God, the good news, begins with us as being a recipient. Mercy stops the arguing. It stops the trying. Stops the, the the stops the victim status when it comes to our sin. It stops trying to move the goalposts of right and wrong. Mercy says, "I failed." It's admitting wrong. It has to come to that. It has to confess, "I failed," but because of Jesus, because Jesus took my failure, I can have His success applied to my account. This morning, that's where we're at. We haven't met the standard of mercy, but God's offering that through Jesus Christ, He's paid the price for us already, and so that the standard can be met. And let me tell you, that as we understand that, there's so much freedom in that. There's such a release in the fact that I don't have to try to pretend anymore. I'm free to be honest. I am free because of the mercy of God. To be real. There's freedom in that. Great freedom and great joy. And it's out of there, and it's only out of there that we then get to move. From there, because God has shown me mercy, that I'm called to show it to others. It's in that sense that, again, mercy begins with me as a giver. Mercy begins with me as a giver. See, objects of mercy are intended to become conduits of mercy. Let me say that again for you. Objects of God's mercy are intended to become conduits of his mercy. As I mentioned earlier, there's no ducking this. If God has shown you mercy, you're to show it. Period. Showing mercy to others is a mark of having received it yourself. That's why Jesus flips the question around at the end of the text from who is my neighbor to in verse 36, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? If we get that, if we understand that, then this passage becomes instructive to us into how we are to go about showing mercy to others. And so we, the natural next question would be, how do we do that? How do we do that? A couple points of coaching here. First, mercy sees with compassion. Mercy sees with compassion. Look back at the text with me. Verse 31, the priest saw the man. Verse 32, the Levite saw the man. Verse 33, the Samaritan saw the man. And he had compassion. Three people see the man, one takes action. Gang, the way you see people matters. The way you look at others matters. Mercy as a giver really starts right there in how you're looking at others around you. Others that are not deserving of mercy. Others that are not deserving of love. Others that are not coming through. That's our crowd. Now by all means, mercy in this passage can be defined here as love or caring for the undeserving. It's a call of compassion that moves to action. But the beginning point is seeing. It's seeing. You know, I lived in Chicago. I remember many times as a college student feeling utterly overwhelmed by the poverty, drugs, addictions that you're confronted with every single day when you live downtown. Every day. Just feeling overwhelmed by it all. Again and again and again. And the temptation of my heart was to either have a naive heart, a disengaged heart or a hard heart. But you don't have to live in downtown Chicago or downtown Milwaukee to have that temptation. In fact, you could be walking from Jerusalem to Jericho. Same temptation. It's the same set of obstacles that you'll find that we're faced with. They're faced with here, racial obstacle, a financial obstacle, a risk obstacle, and it's adding up to a very complicated situation all of these complications, they can cloud our vision into doing nothing. They can cloud our vision into doing nothing. Mercy. Having eyes of mercy. Seeing others with compassion. It looks at the the smell wafting through your window differently. It looks at poor differently. It looks at Problems differently. It looks at things and it asks the question what does mercy look like in this situation? Which brings me to my second point of coaching. Mercy isn't cowardly. It isn't cowardly. It's very easy to allow fear of potential results or lack of results of offering mercy to point us right back to the same spot of doing nothing. In the text, It is very easy for us to look at the Jewish priest and the Levite and to judge them for doing nothing. But the reality is, we've even been here, haven't we? I remember one time uh, in Spokane, uh, same neighborhood, coming across uh, a, a street, and I see down the way something in the road. And as I'm starting to walk towards it, I see it move. And I realize this is a body in the street. And as I'm getting over uh, to, to, to the guy, uh, I, I quickly find out as people you know, in this house over here are yelling that this guy just got jumped, right? And what did my head do, right? It goes on a swivel looking for danger. Listen, this situation that we have in our passage was far more dangerous than that. They're out in the middle of nowhere. There's no 911. There's nobody coming for a rescue. This is a dangerous situation, But mercy isn't cowardly. Mercy knows when to say yes, when to say no. It has courage to say yes, and it has courage to say no. I find many times when God has prompted me to get involved in a particular situation, which is not every problem, but when he prompts, I find that many times you have to say no to some things in order to address the real thing. You gotta say no to addressing some problems in order to be able to address the real problem. It's far, oftentimes, more intense and costly to try to address that problem. Which brings me to my third and final point of coaching mercy is costly. It is costly, which is the last hang up that oftentimes can be the big struggle for us showing mercy. In verses 34 to 36, we see a couple examples of the cost of mercy here. Probably for us, as we look at this, the biggest cost that the Samaritan faced was time. He stops, he helps, he transports, he nurses, and then he has to start his journey all over again. The example of the Samaritan is that he is lavish with time. Lavish with the most important and precious resource that any one of us has been entrusted with. Also, there's a risk cost here that we just saw. Again, there's there's also a comfort cost though, right? He puts the man on his animal and then he has to walk the steep, winding roads back. There's a cost of his comfort right there. Also... There's a large financial cost. There's oil, wine, bandages, probably from his own clothing, as cloth was valuable in those days. And finally, he pays for the man's full recovery, his full recovery, which, by the way, saves the man from slavery. The man had nothing. He literally doesn't even have clothes on his back. And the man pays for his stay and for his recovery and commits to paying the rest of his bill, which means... That this guy who would have not had the option of filing a a, you know Chapter 11 bankruptcy gets saved from slavery to the innkeeper. This is a costly act of mercy. It's what it looks like to love someone like ourselves. And as we go about this work of mercy, we better realize it's costly. It's not cowardly. It has courage. It has compassion when it looks at others. And it begins with me because as a follower of Jesus, his final command in verse 37 was you go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. Show love to the undeserving in the way that we show love to ourselves. Personally, when I, <clears throat> excuse me, when I think of this example of showing mercy to others, The the practical example that always arrests my mind uh, is in a man named Scott Achenbach. Scott, as a nine-year-old boy, when my family and I, when we moved to uh, the town of Lindsburg, Kansas, uh, we were broke. We didn't advertise it, uh, but that was the state of things. My my dad uh, was trying to sell insurance. My mom was working at McDonald's trying to make ends meet was, was a serious challenge. And uh, and one evening, uh, Scott uh, called up my dad. We, we didn't really know Scott. Scott went to our, our, our church, and he owned the local grocery store. And Scott invited my, my dad to come uh, uh, by after he was done with work and the, the store closed. And Scott walked my dad up and down those aisles of that grocery store. And he said things like, Dan, do your boys like pizza? Dan, do, do your boys like cereal? And as they're going, Scott's just stocking the cart. As a nine-year-old boy, I still remember that image of them walking in those doors with groceries in their arms and just being so excited that the refrigerator was going to be full, the freezer was full. That's mercy. That's what mercy looks like. And that is the beautiful thing that God has charged you and me, as followers of his, as recipients of his mercy who have stopped arguing with him about it, to then turn and go and do likewise. Let's pray. Father, we know. We know that mercy is complicated, difficult, and awkward. It often is, and it's often unfruitful. In this passage, God, we know it's not the sum total of your wisdom and your instruction on mercy. But we also know, God, that we're struggling with just meeting this passage. That we struggle with compassion. We struggle to see others differently. We struggle to bear bear the cost of mercy and to not be scared. I ask that you would come in, encourage our hearts, and lead us in a way that shows us how mercy begins right here with us. We pray that in your name. Amen.